Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to this edition of Planet Pod from COP26. We're into week two, um, still standing. As you know, we're supported by the COP26 Universities Network and the University of Strathclyde, working in partnership to bring you this special series. And I'm delighted to welcome my guest today because today is Climate Mitigation, Adaption and Loss and Damage Day at COP. And I'm joined in our mini makeshift studio by two experts. And I'm going to say they are experts because they bring expertise and insight into this really complex conversation and this complex set of issues. Larissa Naylor is a professor of geomorphology and environmental geography at Glasgow University. Larissa, welcome and thanks for joining us. Hello, thank you very much for having me today. And I'm joined by one of her PhD students, Udok Afia, who is researching the impact of climate change and damage and loss on coastal communities in Nigeria. Hello and welcome. Hello, thank you for having me here. And as I said, today is a day at COP where we're looking at adaption, mitigation, loss and damage. So, Larissa, I wonder if I could ask you to maybe give a sense for our, our listeners, what do all those words mean and what is this subject that we're discussing Yes, so a lot of the first week of COP especially has been focused on mitigation. And mitigation uh, is, uh, of climate change means actions we take to reduce the amount of dangerous greenhouse gases emitted to the atmosphere. This is why the COP26 pledges on methane, coal and fossil fuels um, are so important, as well as individual behavioural changes, um, such as walking more, driving less, things like that. Um, but mitigation can also occur by using nature and working with nature, um, supporting uh, using nature to absorb more carbon. Because over the last few decades, we've really globally, we've destroyed a lot of nature and humans are only just really realizing across all levels the value of nature and it, its critical role it plays in helping us mitigate climate change through absorbing some of these gases. Um, so basically counteracting the impacts of the, of the emissions that we have are responsible for on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it, it counter, nature can help absorb some of the, uh, of the gases that we emit. We absolutely need to decarbonise, um, but we also need to use nature more than we do, and that's all to mitigate. Um, adaptation, on the other hand, is changing how we live and work, um, i.e. all of our lives, every aspect of our lives, um, to live with the climate change we're already experiencing. Uh, and some parts of the world are experiencing more f- with more ferocity than others. Um, some of us don't necessarily feel like we're currently living with climate change, but we very soon will be if we aren't. So a- a- adaptation is really about how do we plan ahead for that? How do we um, make our societies more resilient through decisions we take now to have a intergenerational, climate-flexible uh, resilient communities. So the, the IPCC sixth assessment has called those climate resilient development pathways. Um, and particularly where you interface with water, whether that's the sea or rivers, um, we need to be interfacing. We need to see these, these are dynamic boundaries, they're fluid. We've chosen to fix them um, and that's created consequences. We've chosen to fix them and place assets that are now very much are in some parts of the world or very soon will be in harm's way. When you say we've chosen to fix them as boundaries, what, what do you mean exactly? Well, we talk about the coast as a line. Okay. As a basic <laughs> level, we talk about the coastline, we talk about the shoreline. Um, and, and actually, it's never been fixed no. in space and time. It's, it's dynamic, it changes. And with sea level rise, the, the, the natural systems want to respond to that. 
And, and when it's sea levels rising, they want to respond by migrating inland. Um, and so currently in Scotland, the Dynamic Coast 2 project, which is Scottish government funded and the research was led by the University of Glasgow, we, we found that currently 20 billion pounds of assets are within 50 metres of Scottish coast. Of that, 14.5 billion is through nature. Uh, if we don't give the nature that space to accommodate, you know, the, the, how it wants to respond to sea level rise, that nature will become degraded and that, that nature will then pro- not provide those direct flood and erosion benefits, erosion-related flooding benefits that they currently provide. So you can think of sand dunes across towns in Scotland or um, protecting world-famous golf courses and things like that. That we, you know, Those types of assets are, are increasing at risk. The erosion risk is increasing. Um, so in Montrose, the east coast of Scotland, we're looking at two and a half metres of, of erosion a year. Back in the late 1800s, it was as little as 15 centimetres a year. Wow, that's a pretty significant shift. But how can you do that? I mean, obviously, if the coast is eroding and the sea levels are rising and moving... Are you suggesting that we just let that happen, or are you suggesting that we build sea defences to protect the famous golf courses? Or is that way too simplistic, a question? Uh, no, it was a question I was asked precisely by the media on Saturday, French media, um, and uh, they, they had those polar opposites. So yes, in, you can resist erosion um, to a certain extent. You can alleviate the risk. You can't protect, you can't defend. Uh, it's a really important message. Um, and so certainly like in flood risk management in England, you know, in the late 1990s, they might have talked about flood defence and then flood protection and now flood alleviation uh, is recognition that, that we can only alleviate risk. We cannot remove risk. Um, but particularly when we're talking about something like erosion, yes, you could choose. And in some places, in some very urban places, we'll choose to do that. Um, but it will have great cost, not just the cost of building it, um, but it's also the cost of maintaining it. So the Environment Agency uh, in England, again, has produced a very good report, which shows that there's something like a five to eight times increase expected in the next century in terms of repair costs to existing defences. So it isn't only the cost of building it, but as our storms get more intense, as our sea, as the structures get wetted and dried, more often the, the weathering-related deterioration will amplify. Um, so absolutely we can choose to do that, and some places in the UK we, we, we absolutely are, um, but we, we need to do that very mindfully and very carefully, and wherever possible we use nature. Um, but going back to those hard structures, some of my research and, and research of others around the world, including one of the Earthshot finalists here at COP, um, is about working with nature when you choose the hard structures. So we call it greening the grey, and it's actually can you design them for nature? And that's our, our often providing habitats. But again, that's in places where it's a very much a, a, a human-centred decision that this is the type of line we want to take, approach we want to take. Whereas in most cases... You know that that's not going to be economically feasible, but also socially feasible. So, up in the north of Edinburgh, there's a really good opposite example of where they're actually saying it's a regeneration project. It's a light industrial area at the moment, historically reclaimed land. So historically, over 100 years ago, it was in the sea, um, and that has really high flood risk. And their original master plan was to put 600 was to put houses right to the coastal edge. And instead, they've currently through planning, not through the political process yet, but to, to, to move those 600 houses back 
build fewer houses actually um, which is a challenge because their social houses is a high demand for them in, in, in Edinburgh but what they were doing was building fewer houses in a resilient place and this park they would again get built but the park can provide a buffer and as sea levels continue to rise uh, you could then make that park coastal rather than just traditional urban green space what you've done is you've created space for, f- for flexibility for future generations and flexibility for nature to continue to provide some defense and wider amenity benefits um, and i guess it's one thing that's critical thinking around all of this is that even if we so our dynamic coast research has found that even if we achieve net zero sea levels will still continue to rise there's a there's a lag effect in the system so we, we have to, when people say why, what we should, really need to decarbonize because if we don't hit 1.5 or 2 degrees, you know, we're not going to have a planet to live on. Absolutely. But we equally need adaptation to be on a level playing field because we've already committed societies worldwide to a certain level of sea level rise by our past emissions. And we have to adapt and make our communities resilient to those conditions that, that we've ostensibly humans have chosen to put themselves into. Yeah. And we, we, we hear quite a lot about small island states, and we've talked about it on the pod before. So those coastal communities, those, those islands that are actually, you know, already losing their coastline, already losing their communities, already using their buildings. But, but actually, this is happening all over the world, isn't it? And the work that you've been doing, you know, looking at the, the, the impact on kind of coastal erosion in Nigeria is proving that this is a global problem with really complex solutions. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and, and what you found. Here. Okay, yeah, that's true. Climate change is actually a global issue. So, like, um, my research is basically um, situated in Africa, so looking at the vulnerability and the susceptibility of the Nigerian coast to, you know, coastal erosion specifically, because um, it's actually understudied, that's one. And then to despite the fact that Africa as a continent is contributing less than 5% you know, um, carbon emission, but yet they are the most vulnerable continent to the impact of climate change. And yet we still have, um, we still have um, limited researches on you know, the impacts of climate change in these areas. So like along the coast in um, Nigeria specifically, you realize that there is... Um, um, there's so much impact of climate change there, but there is a disconnect between, you know, the government and um, also the people living in these areas. So my research actually focuses on using participatory action research to get the people in this area involved. Because you realize that most of the time, um, most of the risk-based methods are data-intensive, and we don't have such in the um, developing nations. So it's actually mostly data scarce environment and all that. So what I'm actually doing, what the research is all about, is combining what we can get, the satellite images, with the indigenous knowledge um, to assess the impact in these areas. And um, indigenous knowledge, having that um, inclusion is really important to tackling climate change. Because when you talk about adaptation, you talk about mitigation, if there is no involvement of the stakeholders at this um, level, you realize that whatever policies the government would have, you know, if you're using a top-to-down approach, would be jeopardized by those who are actually affected by it. But it's um, really sad to know that most of the people who are the frontliners um, are not actually having the help they would need from government to mitigate. 
Um, let me just give you like an example when I was in the field. You realize most of the information they understand, you know, in the field is like, oh, we need, um, um, what do you call it, um, the need to put embankments around, we need the government to do this. There is no sense of responsibility on their own part. But by the time we discuss, they realize, okay, why don't you, you know, let's talk about things like stop destroying nature. Deforestation, can we, because if you think that every responsibility lies on, you know, the government and, you know, and you're not having that help from the government, so everybody just, I mean, you, deforestation is taking place along the coast, um, the, the building along, you know, um, I heard Larissa talk about making room for the river, but that's not happening because we are development of um, infrastructures and everything, so that's not taken into consideration. But when we kind of like, when you go to these communities and discuss with them and, you know, everybody sits together to work on this project, you realize that there is this understanding, oh, I also have a part to play in it. And what are those little steps we can take, like deforestation, um, um, avoiding deforestation, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So allow the mangroves to grow along the coast because this is actually protecting the coast. And also um, plant retreats. You know, it's one of the... One of the issues I realized in the field, there are some things we don't talk about. There are some key things, you know, the impact of climate change. Um, it's, is it safe flooding, erosion? But there are some other indirect impacts like communal wars, and this is really happening. So lots of lives in these areas, just because they're trying to retreat from the coast and you don't have the government being involved in the negotiation, you know. on. So this is one community going into another community's yes. space and creating conflict, basically. Exactly, yes, because, I mean, no one wants you to encroach into their space. But, I mean, if you had, if there was this understanding, even with the government or, you know, the stakeholders at the governmental level, you would realise there will be a negotiation between the government and these communities to allow a planned retreat just to give room for the river along the coast, you know. So, but this is not happening. And then when these communities go in, there's a whole lot of issues, problem, because people are trying to, you know, claim their lands and all that. Yeah, so it's really important that the voices of the frontliners be heard, you know. So I would, um, you know, suggest that we should um, leave the top-to-down approach but, you know, engage in, if possible, the down-to-top approach or a combination of both because you really need this participation um, for mitigation and adaptation. Yes, you need a participation. One of the things I remember, so Udwak's fieldwork was, was a few years ago now, and um, the thing I remember, and we were corresponding with you a little bit while you were in the field, and it, it was the same time as there was a, a hurricane in America. And it was all over the news. Um, I forget exactly the name of the hurricane. It doesn't really matter for, for our story. Uh, one of a number of annual hurricanes that hit the east coast of America and are in, increasing in frequency. And it was all over the news, uh, the Western news at least. And you know, there was shock and horror that something like two people died or something like that. And meanwhile, Uduak is sending us the odd photo and messages saying... Yes, so we had like um, flowers in the field yeah. and we just had a, a pre-field where you go to discuss with the community that you'll be coming back the following week. And we got this phone call, you know, um, at, in the night because the area has been badly eroded. They had a storm and over 50 houses were, you know, were, were, were flushed away, you know, were taken away and eight lives lost. But the sad part is the local government didn't even know what was happening there. And when I went to the government, you know, the state government 
Office on Environmental and Protection, and I brought it up. They're like, they were surprised to hear that. So they had no idea. So in terms of the impact, you know, quantifying the impact, even something as basic as loss of lives, it's not documented, you know, at um, governmental levels and all that. So it's only, so it's more like the people in the community, they, they are the ones trying to tackle this in their own way. And the impact is really huge. Eight lives lost in one day. And we didn't hear this anyway. I mean, <laughs> why isn't it recorded in that way? Why isn't it accounted for? Well, it's because um, basically I would say there's a whole lot of distrust between the government, um, the communities and the government. So government probably had come in, you know, they've tried to come in, you know, with promises which they don't fulfill. So you realize sub subsequently there's that, does that break down in communication? So um, the, the community wouldn't really respond to the government, neither is the government trying to make the effort anymore. So there is that um, breakdown in communication. So um, nobody knows what's going on on either way, you know, either part. But however, they do see the government when it's time for election. So that's the only time they communicate to the government. You know, the government officials will come there. And um, that's, that's just basically it. But if you look at there's actually money, you know, um, given to tackle this um, that's why we actually have the Environmental Protection Agency. So they have allocations to tackle climate change impact, but we don't know what's happening. And um, it's more like um, um, when we try to interview, you know, to make to do uh, further research, it was more of awareness. And I think the problem is the awareness is limited to the urban area. Mm -hmm. So these are along the coast. These are areas that are not easily accessible. We had to go using boats and people don't want to risk their lives to, you know, go into these areas. But it's important that awareness should get to these communities. And I would um, encourage, it's something to encourage that um, we need to understand awareness is not just the knowledge of it, but also taking responsibility and accountability to make sure that steps are taken, proper steps are taken, you know, for adaptation and mitigation, which I feel is lacking. So it's just... Um, yeah, I feel that's lucky. So. Where those steps are taken and, and where those communities are empowered, if I can use that word, to, to understand not just the issue that they're facing, but some of the solutions, have you come across an appetite to actually do that? I mean, when the community, when, you know, rather than having this top-down, huge amounts of money that are talked about at, at, at COP at the moment, which we know isn't filtering through the system, where you actually work with those communities, what are the responses that you that you oh, get? Oh yeah, they're, they're actually willing to work with government. There's actually um, a scenario or an example of one of the areas where we had um, a research um, team plant mangroves. It's been like over 20 years ago in one aspect. So I was surprised to hear on the other part of the coast, um, you know, they made reference to it that, oh, something like this was done if the government could help us, you know, financially or even with, um, you know, just education on how to manage these things, how to plant this, you know, mangroves, we would do more. But when we don't, we don't have, you know, the knowledge, you know, the technical knowledge on how to do it, we can do But yeah, they are willing to because that was basically the one of the primary questions. Are we willing to work with not just the government, with any organization or with the academic sector? 
on tackling climate change issue and yeah, response was yes. So it just it's really wonderful to hear you reflect, Uduak, and see all the theory that you've learned in your thesis come in. <laughs> Mia's excellent, other super, one of the other supervisors' excellent you know, involvement come through. It's lovely to hear. But one of the things that was striking for me about what you recounted about those, you know, those 50 houses being destroyed and eight people dying in, in, in one flood is that you know, you could probably magnify it up along that coast because that a lot of that coast is very similar. It's a strand coast. It's so that storm would have impacted much more than the the, the, the small area that Uduag had the privilege and uh, to be able to study, and that you know, so globally we're underreporting this massively, these impacts because they because these are like the silent, unheard voices, and I suppose this research helped bring it to life and. And our university was really supportive of providing some of the funding as yes. well as other people around um, the UK. And it was not without risk to Udo, actually. Mm. The risk assessment involved having to come with armoured guards to do the field work. Yes. You know? Wow. Um, so it was a very challenging environment with this work. And so it's really wonderful that this work can hear the light of day through this, this podcast. Yeah. But what the other things that one of your other images to me that was really striking, which is some imagery of which the satellite imagery of the area is quite coarse so capturing these sorts of changes even though by you know we talked about two and a half meters a year measuring that in scotland this was much bigger than that but either it was this community or another you can correct me because i don't quite remember uh, the, de- the exact detail but literally the erosion cut the community in half yes yes um so you maybe want to elaborate okay. a bit on that yeah so we have this community along because it's actually into three <laughs> it cut it into you know the we had um, the first part of the community being divided and it's funny because that, of erosion. Yeah, because of erosion. Yeah. So you can't even get across except you have to use a boat. It's that bad, you know, and um, yeah, so... And that has a disproportionately damaging impact on people's social networks, yeah, doesn't oh, it, and their lives. It's not just the physical survival we're talking about here. It's actually all of the, the social interactions and networks and families and relationships and which have been there for, you know, for, for many, many years, for generations. So, so this is, you know, it's having a physical impact on the landscape and a social and emotional impact on the communities that live there. Yes, it does. Uh, because going to the field, we actually didn't even talk about the mental impact, you know, it has. But being on ground, you would see that because um, a lot of um, family support, because they thrive so much on family support. And you realise that they stay in these areas because of family support in terms of even also for the... Um, they are carry the, the 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 fishing and everything, so the the need the family support. But with this, it's been really difficult. You know, it's been very difficult for them having to be separated, and then even moving to one other community. You talk about your know, the boats. Though they have the boats, but the, those that have the boats have to make. You know, it's a source of livelihood also, and then you have to pay. Mm-hmm. So it's um, on all sides. It's really been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, obviously the, the university supported you in, in doing your research, and, but it sounds to me as if that might have been quite a, you know, the comments about armoured vehicles, quite a complex and costly activity. Did you, did you need to have funding from elsewhere to make it happen? Oh yeah, the, my work is actually primarily supported by TED Fund Nigeria, and then for the field work, um, the University of Glasgow and also SEGIS. Yeah, funded funded that, but the research as a whole is by Ted Fund. Yeah. yeah. So big shout out to Yeah, big shout out to them. You. Thanks so much. So so what sorts of things are you hoping for, Larissa, today from the conversations and 
conversations that will spiral out of today? Because, you know, one day is not enough to discuss this immensely complex subject. Um, yeah, you asked me to, to talk about why adaptation might not have been considered at past COPs as well. So remind me to remember yeah. to talk about that as well. But I think, you know, I mean, this is, these are a couple of examples from the coast, um, but they're kind of a microcosm for the world around adaptation. Is, you know, I think ideally today we want adaptation to come up the agenda. Uh, we want it to be placed on equal pegging to all of the pledges on mitigation. And so they talk about the Glasgow Pact, um, and as part of that Glasgow Pact, I really want to see some, some, something concrete around adaptation that, that binds nations to deliverables. There is an international standard, an ISO on adaptation, that was produced a couple of years ago. And I was actually, it feels like a lifetime ago with COVID, I was in Portugal for the European Climate Change Adaptation Conference. But the, a, a woman who was in my session was, was a Japanese woman leading on that. And she actually referred back in her talk, which was after my talk, to, to part of my talk. But she said, this, this standard is only useful if we act on it and we implement it. And I had talked about implementation and she had tears in her eyes. Um, and it was such an emotional session. You know, we, so not only do we need something, we need adaptation to be on equal pegging and it needs to be financially resourced. Um, and, but it also needs to be something that becomes part of the DNA of every organisation. So I just came out of a leadership session um, this morning and with government leaders and, and some industry leaders. What, what kind of leadership do we need? And, and I suppose something like adaptation... We need everyone, like you know, so so big business, property developers, large housing companies, to, to to have a set of questions that they have to ask, and some kind of standard needs to ask this because the adaptation is different than mitigation in the sense it's it's not about green recovery, it's not about jobs, it's about the opposite to that in some ways. It's it's about mitigating loss and damage so people can continue to do their jobs they can continue to function in society and have an income that then supports society through the tax base through their spending etc and if we have too many losses and damages we hamper our ability to function as we've seen in covid right um and so we if we don't take adaptation seriously enough we risk that kind of disruption becoming normal becoming normalized and that having big economic mental health societal you know consequences including the extreme ones of these communities being split into three uh, that, that Uruak has talked about so eloquently so so I think there's a real need not only for adaptation to come up the agenda but for it to, to have a very clear implementation plan and almost to embed it in this kind of notion of climate resilient development pathways so that if you're asking you know going back to that Edinburgh example if they had built the houses, if, if they had kept with the plan to build houses right to the coastal edge and in a place that was historically the sea mm. and that is naturally has underlying risk to erosion, is that a climate resilient place to build a new community for future generations? And well, of course it isn't. Of course it isn't. <laughs> but so I think we need those. We, as a headline, there needs to be a set of requirements that are much more social, political, decision making requirements about development moving forward and how we make sure that that's not getting locked in um, and that's that's the easy part the communities like Uduak's describing and there's communities in England so the committee on climate change reported on again on coastal erosion and said you know there's currently 8,000 homes at risk of erosion in England in 2018 
that number is going to grow to 100,000 by 2100. The same issues with villages, rural villages in Suffolk and Norfolk, they're not necessarily going to want people moving in. And we, so well, we, I live on the, uh, the, the coast, the Suffolk coast, yes. and we see erosion happening yes. before our very eyes. So, But you're absolutely right. I mean, those communities, you're talking about livelihoods and communities and people having to shift and move into new spaces. Yeah. And that's... That's traumatic for everybody, isn't it? So we have to be really grown up in this conversation. And, and, and sensitive and compassionate. And, and so actually, um, Professor Katrina Brown wrote a paper in Neil Adger about empathy and climate change. And yeah. it's very much relevant to adaptation, for sure. Um, and, but also, I think uh, we need to let go. You know, we, ha- we have to let go of our, our fixed boundary between the land and sea or rivers, for sure. Um, but we have to let go of, of communities in some cases. I come from Western Canada and, you know, we talked a lot about the coast, but this, it's, it's, it's need to adapt. It's across the piece. And wildfires are another good example. And, you know, my province has had a state of emergency, I would say, four out of the last five summers. And the intensity of the burning, the ferocity of it is increasing and an entire community was destroyed uh, when I used to pass through in my summer jobs when I was in university. And, you know, how sustainable is it? We've built homes at the forest grassland ecotone. It naturally wants to burn and we've chosen to build whole societies and not just in, in North America, but in, in Australia and in uh, and other parts of the world. And how do we respond to that? We've, the, those fires are, are not going to disappear if we reach net zero. They'll be less worse than they are, but they're already pretty bad. So how do we adapt to that? So, so what, would you, what would you say that we should need to do? I mean, you know, it's, it, we know we need to do something. This is immensely complicated, way more complicated, I think, than, than some of the conversations around carbon reductions to, to 1.5, because we absolutely know that stuff. We know what we have to do. How do we tackle this really difficult yeah. social, emotional, economic, physical challenge that, yeah. that adaptation I, presents? I mean, uh, and I guess at a fundamental level, it requires a kind of whole of society transformation, which is quite a challenging thing. Um, and, and so I think it isn't, yes, we need you know, the agenda to go up at COP, we need some pledges, um, but I suppose in doing that, we need, we need that high-level leadership saying this is as important and actually it's more complicated it's and it's much more nuanced and it's much more about lives and livelihoods in a because the decisions around it are social mm. to, to a large extent rather than scientific you know in, in terms of and, and you can't how do you measure it you know you can measure decarbonization you can measure parts per million how do you measure successful adaptation now there's there's lots of academics and practitioners trying to do that worldwide but it's so it's something so we need to somehow win the hearts and minds and and we need to kind of I think you know I've brought in environmental economics into some of my own research around the sort of greening the grey and we've actually used an environmental economist to say to help cost the benefits of this coastal park in Edinburgh through a kind of green infrastructure led project because it will support that business case because it's a, ultimately a political decision mm-hmm. and I guess we need to really think what are the benefits and disbenefits and we need to we need to extend our development, our political timeframes. So we need politicians who are willing to take the long view, but we also need development planners and housing developers. So if, if a house is only supposed to last for 50 years and the flood defence structures for 80 years, then who, who maintains it? How long are we building these communities for and to have really bold decisions? And we're the ones that have to move 
how do we do that at the moment? It, you know, a seawall or a river defence is seen as a public good, but it's really protecting individual houses and assets. Mm-hmm. And what you're, the, the challenge with adaptation is it's the individual's um, houses and in, or businesses that are directly affected. Mm-hmm. And it, so, it's, so we have to see that as a public good. It's better for everybody's mental health, well-being, for all of society. So I think you can actually make parallels to COVID in the sense that there are some good things, that you know, there's some terrible things with COVID, um, but there's some good things. We've shown how quickly societies can transform. We've shown that there's an attempt, at least, to try to have an international... You know, there's a push, let's vaccinate the whole world in order to get through this. We need to, to vaccinate the whole world. It's happening fast enough and all of that. But I guess it's the same thing for adaptation. You know, mm. how do we make these stories like Uduak describing real enough to everyone's everyday life that they're willing to make them small measures that you can take as an individual to, to mitigate, but also be accepting of big transformative change to so that their children and grandchildren have a future. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, you know, it's, it's probably a bit trite to ask you, but, but do you think that there's movement in the current conversation at COP, given that, as you said, you know, adaptation hasn't been high enough out of the gender before? Is there enough, do you sense enough political, um, economic, social willingness to, to try and begin to have this conversation? Because that's really what we're talking about. We're just talking about beginning to have the conversation yeah. rather than just implementing... And any form of solution because we're so far away from that. Yeah, I, it's an interesting one. It's too early. I, I'm being interviewed for this in the middle of Adaptation Day. Uh, <laughs> I'll ask you again Day. tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, ask me again tomorrow. One says, but uh, stepping back from that, it's interesting that adaptation is in week two, not in week mm. one. Mm. Um, and and uh, along with gender and other things. Uh, yes, <laughs> other key parameters. And yes, you have to have a program. But if you really wanted it to be on an equal playing field, having some of that when the when yeah. the politicians were around would have been yeah. helpful, I think. But also, I, I mean, I went to an event in the New York Times Hub. It was amazing. If anyone has a chance to get a ticket, go. It's fab. But there's very little on adaptation. Yeah. Precious little on adaptation. Yeah. And I was in, a. I went to one, my only session that I've been to is called, was a say-do gap. And it was all about, you know, mitigation. There was a little bit about supply chains for there was a director of sustainable for Unilever and she was talking about the need for farming to be sustainable and help the farmers become sustainable which is a form of adaptation but it wasn't explicit mm-hmm. um, and Robert uh, Watson who's a head of the ecological equivalent of the IPCC was one of the panelists and I posed a question about adaptation and and he said I would argue that as much if not more financial resourcing needs to be spent because it is this complex social ecological social mm. geomorphological um, process because you know we're we currently manage flooding through managing as if the bathtub overflows mm. and actually we're going to get we have had and we continue to have river revulsions mm. so the river will literally bust its banks it will erode mm. and that's a geomorphological process and we need to understand the past so Understanding where rivers, for example, have moved in the past will help us better plan communities for the future. So yeah. we're not putting them somewhere where the river will naturally want to move. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and, um, Simple uh, things like not building on floodplains. Well, giving, no, not just that, but giving space for the river to, the river's course to move. Okay, so not just overflowing, but actually ah. changing directions. Ah. And, 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 and I guess this plays also into supporting those wider conversations about biodiversity and supporting 
you know, you were talking about mangroves, and I was struck that actually they're very useful as carbon sinks as well yes. as being coastal protection. So they can mitigate and, and mitigate help with that adaptation. And, you know, and if we if we denude nature of its of its ability to to, to create its own defences, yeah. then then we're yes. you know we're reinforcing yeah. some of that damage, aren't yes. we? So so we need a much more joined up, more cohesive approach to managing some of these issues, don't we? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because actually to achieve the net zero you're talking about, um, we need a more holistic approach, you know, and when you talk about holistic approach, it's not just, um, I would say, you know, involving the communities in this area, but I'm stakeholders on, you know, across all different, you know, the different fields and everything. Because prior to now, I would expect that before COP26, we should be hearing of a lot of town hall meetings, you know, a lot of different sectors talking about how, you know, their approach adaptation, and then they would, all these things would be collated or it would be integrated, and that would be like a presentation, you know, here. So I think, yeah, we need something holistic and across, you know, all the different disciplines. And... Um, so that during the negotiations, you know, of course, they always closed on negotiations. We don't know what is being negotiated. These things would be addressed, you know, in that area. And then, yeah. So, mm-hmm. and, and what do you hope, Luak, that you're going to do with your research and your findings? What are the next steps for you with the incredibly rich material that's come out of what you've been doing? Okay, first, I would um, hope that, you know, I can bring the experience of what's happening in, you know, in these areas bring it, you know, the experience to, to for, for everyone so that we could all relate. And I mean, if we are able to relate with what's going on in these um, vulnerable countries, I think governments all around, as in general, will be able to make um, policies, you know, that would be favorable. Also, um, just to let us see what the vulnerable nations are going through, especially because of lack of resources for adaptation, monitoring, mitigation and everything and yeah, and then create that awareness also among us, create the awareness generally mm-hmm. uh, and also that we can all hands should be on deck, it's not just the government, all everybody in your little you, um, capacity or in your own little way you can actually do something because I mean if everybody is taking one step towards it I'll be one problem now for climate change. Yeah, great agenda. You asked me to, to talk about why we haven't really considered adaptation, and I would counter, you know, Greta Thunberg. I took my son to the march on Friday. Well, the end of the march, I was he came to a COP event I was doing, and um, unfortunately, this I felt that the sort of people around me that the speeches weren't pitched for them. He was just ten; they were pitched for sort of later teens and older kids and one person beside me said these are the speeches I would have expected for the adults it didn't and it, and it didn't do that much to inspire the youth as much as it could have but he did remember Greta saying there's been 26 cops of blah 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 and uh, he was recounting it all day on Saturday to his younger brother's annoyance um, but I have a little retrospective I produced last week kind of at the last minute in my excitement for cop about my own kind of trajectory and I was a youth activist in 1990 but that was actually spurred by attending a conference in Vancouver Canada where I grew up where I won a youth delegation place and Grow Harlem Brundtland was was a speaker and this was three years this was 1990 it was three years after 
our common future and two years before Rio. And the conference was actually used partly to bring indigenous groups in and consider how they could be included in Rio. But I, so I had to go through some archives to pull the material together for last week. And um, I've got a Vancouver Sun newspaper article in front of me right now. And it's talking about the conference coming ahead. And it says next week in, in Vancouver, a unique conference with delegates from 60 countries. We'll try to find some answers to the most pressing environmental issues in history. This is 1990, I repeat. Listen, I don't think we've got very much time, said John Fraser, Speaker of the Canadian House of Commons. There has never been any generation since the beginning of human history that has faced anything quite as awesome, as difficult as we're going to do. And the goal of that conference was to try to find ways to save the earth. So Greta saying, this was five years before COP1. Yeah. And yeah. Greta is saying, we've had 26 COPs of blah, blah, blah. And I would totally agree with her to some extent. And that we absolutely need that whatever comes out of this COP that is implemented and there's action and that, and that people are empowered and inspired are given the tools and the capacity to themselves and across the piece worldwide that it's just and fair that we can actually you know not be repeating ourselves 30 years from now because we'll either be on fire or underwater or all sorts of things and there'll be mass migrations so do we want that future we really need to take the opportunity now and seize it yeah and we need to seize that future as as in inverted commas, the adults in the room, because we should not be relying on the nine-year-olds, the 10-year-olds, or even on the 20-year-olds that were out on that march on, Saturday, on yes. Friday. And again on Saturday, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people have turned out across the globe, you know, and in Glasgow in the pouring rain, I might add. Um, so, 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 yeah, the, the moment is now. And I think you put forward an incredibly compelling and evocative case for, for people understanding and taking action. So I'm going to call upon Planet Pod listeners to, to sign up to do something in your communities, whatever it is and whatever you, you can do to support this incredibly important conversation. So huge thanks to you, Larissa, and to you, Uruwak, for sharing that with us. And, and we'll try and catch you at the end of COP to see if you have a score for today's <laughs> conversations, <laughs> Larissa, and to see whether or not you give it a 1 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. I out the latter but thank you so much for joining me and thank you for a fascinating conversation thank you very much for having us thank you very much for having us here you've been listening to planet pod from cop 26 please do follow us on social media uh, get in touch if you have an issue you want us to discuss my huge thanks to to the team to the team at grantham to the team at strathclyde um, to jim and to beth for supporting the podcast thank you for listening and goodbye Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>